I'm Amber Tresca, and this is About IBD. It's my mission to educate people living with Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis about their disease and to bring awareness to the patient journey. Welcome to episode 89. Since 2008, Rare Disease Day is held on the last day of February each year. Rare Disease Day is a global event to raise awareness for people living with rare disorders. That brings me to my guest, Aaron Blocker. Aaron lives with Crohn's disease and an ultra-rare disease called hypophosphatasia, or HPP. Not only did it take years for Aaron to receive the Crohn's diagnosis, but it took even longer to diagnose HPP. HPP is a genetic disorder, so Aaron was born with it, and he has had symptoms for most of his life. People with HPP don't have enough of the enzyme that helps build bone. That leads to premature bone loss, as well as a host of other issues, not to mention the fact that it's also quite painful. Having both conditions makes treating the symptoms of each of them more complicated. Aaron describes how he went about getting the diagnosis of HPP and gives some guidance on what people can do if they think that they might have a rare disease. Aaron, thank you so much for coming on about IBD. Hey, good to be here. Aaron, I was struck by something that I saw during this last Crohn's and Colitis Awareness Week. You did the infographic that uh, the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation puts out for folks to fill out, tell a little bit more about their IBD. And I've known you for a few years, but I didn't know this about you, that it took approximately 60 months, I think you said, to get a diagnosis of Crohn's disease. Was that right? Yeah. You know, I first started showing symptoms and having issues um, when I was like 10 or 11. And I didn't get diagnosed until I was almost 18. So I was in and out the ER. They almost took my appendix out just to take it out because they, they just kept thinking that that was probably it. Even though there were some times that they saw inflammation on like a CT scan, nothing that ever would I guess, lead them to think that it was Crohn's went through all kinds of stuff trying to get, you know, diagnosed. And I was, I was almost 18 by the time we officially got it. And I was always like very skinny, like malnourished. And I don't know if it was just something that they overlooked or weren't sure about, or, you know, lack of knowledge as far as like, you know, we live in, live in a rural area. So I just think a combination of things and then when I was at when I was diagnosed it was determined that I only had deep small bowel Crohn's so oftentimes the CT scan or the MRI would miss it you can't reach it with a scope so that was one of the things so it just wasn't your your typical colon had a little inflammation but nothing that would ever indicate like IBD eventually got with a pediatric IBD specialist who did a pill cam and was like, there it is, you know, there's the the problem. Um, but it was very, very deep. I mean, like the very middle of your small bowel <laughs> behind everything. So yeah, it took a very long time. I was sick. I was malnourished. Eventually got it. It took five years, six years. <laughs> okay, Aaron. So I have like a lot of questions about this <laughs> diagnosis journey. Um, okay. So you were so young. Did you have a colonoscopy? You said they found some they found some inflammation in your colon? I actually didn't have a colonoscopy for a long time. I think one of the reasons was that there was some inflammation, but it wasn't like 
significant enough for them to to warrant a colonoscopy and, and, and you know and somebody so young um was one of the reasons they didn't really it wasn't enough i guess for them to just be like let's go ahead and do it and in the end though like too in the end it wouldn't have really changed anything i don't get scopes as re- as often as a lot of people just because they don't do much um They've never been able to see it. I had one colonoscopy where my colon was inflamed. It wasn't ulcer, like ulcerated or anything like that, but it was inflamed. And they said it could have just been obviously IBD, like creeping up. But it's only been like once I think that a colonoscopy has showed anything. So I went to get pill cam for for my follow ups. Another thing that I noticed about your infographic was that you listed constipation as one of your symptoms, which I don't really see a lot. And yet your inflammation was in your small bowel. So like, how did that all work out with Crohn's disease? Well, that was one of the other issues that did, that kind of attributed to, to not being diagnosed. What From what I was, I dealt with constipation a lot. Like I would, um, to the point of, you know, like obstructing, and then there were times, I mean, there were obviously times where I did have like diarrhea, you know, your classic, you know, like, hey, this is probably IBD related, but m- most of the time it was constipation. The reasoning I was told is is where my disease is located because it's, it's deep, the inflammation, the scarring that I had um, for some reason just made it to where I was constipated more. You know, I think a lot of people seems they were saying, you know, people who have more like colon or terminal ileum involvement typically have obviously your classic like, you know, diarrhea, blood, like that you can see, like all of that. Um, because mine's just so deep, it just had a harder time. Basically harder time getting through, getting through to the colon to get out. So yeah, they just attribute it to to location. Um, but again it it didn't fit your standard you know, Crohn's disease or IBD diagnosis criteria. And that was one thing that like led to the the prolonging of a diagnosis. So they're like, oh, it's constipation, so it's probably not. And then it actually was. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of people don't realize that constipation can be part of it, mm-hmm. which obviously was a, was a big contributing factor to um, it taking so long for you to get a diagnosis. So you also live with another disease, as if the Crohn's disease wasn't enough. Uh, You also live with a rare disorder, which took even longer to get diagnosed, but you can tell me about that. And what you're living with is hypophosphatasia. Most people, I think, in the community refer to it as HPP. Yeah. This is a condition that you were born with. Mm -hmm. But why don't you tell me about this very long road to a diagnosis and a little bit more about what HPP is? Um, it is, it's classified as ultra-rare um, genetic metabolic bone disease. Um, so it affects the way that your body forms strong bones. You know, the genetic mutation doesn't allow my bones to get calcium, magnesium, phosphate, all of those minerals that you need for strong, healthy bones are not able to co- to go into my bone. So it, it comes with, you know, skeletal, like osteoporosis and um, gives you, or they call it like the soft bone disease. So like osteomalacia, where the bones are just very soft. 
though that calcium magnesium phosphorus that can't get into your bones collects elsewhere. So it builds up. So for instance, like the calcium tends to build up in your kidneys to where you can get kidney damage and kidney stones. And then it also can build, like you can get calcium deposits like in your eyes or on your heart. And then the buildup of like the phosphorus and the magnesium leads to issues with your muscles, um, like muscle weakness. Um, a lot of people have nerve issues um, related to it. Also doesn't allow vitamin B6 to get out of your body. So your vitamin B6 is typically very, very elevated. Children, like pediatric version, they're often um, have vi- like vitamin B6 dependent seizures. It's classified as a bone disease, but it, it, it affects pretty much everything. But I actually, obviously I was born with it because it's genetic, but I was actually born with skeletal um, deformity. So I was born with um, bowed legs, bowed long bones. It's not necessarily super uncommon. Um, so I did have to wear braces, but it never corrected. I started to break a lot of stuff, a lot of bones. I also remember I had a lot of bone pain. Um, I would sit a certain way on the floor with my legs because they just hurt so bad. Probably around 10 or 11, I think like my first bone, I broke my fingers. I can't even tell you how many bones I broke. I've broken pretty much one of every like major bone you can think of. They just attributed it to being clumsy. You know, when I was 18, I was told that my hips were going bad. Um, I developed what's called avascular necrosis. They attributed that to prednisone use, even though I was only on prednisone for a brief period of time. And then literally a few months later, they accidentally caught the ABN on a CT scan. Yeah, and they progressed really quick. They said they'd never seen it progress like that as fast as it was in somebody else so young. So yeah, I had um, hip, hips replaced when I was 20, um, both of them. The one thing that really kind of set everything off for me personally was when um, when I dislocated my hip. It was 2016, I think, when that happened. So I was 20, about to be 24, and my right hip dislocated. But I wasn't doing anything. Like I was at home on the bed, and I twisted, and it just shifted out. So I ended up having re- hip replacement revisions. Um, so they went in and just took everything out and put new replacements in because they had came loose. Um, the bone wasn't strong enough to keep the implants that I had in, so they had to make adjustments. And then right after that, um, I had a bone scan, and my osteoporosis was so severe that they, like, they freaked out a little bit just because it was so bad. Like, you know, they often compare you to, like, a certain age. Like, they're like, your bone is worse than an 80-year-old, like, female who's, like, post, like, all of their stuff. They look like menopause and all that where they typically start. She's like, it's way worse than that. Oh, my God. I was like, well, that's not good. <laughs> um, <laughs> Jeez. So I, um, and they wanted to start me on, um, you know, some medicine for it. And I just wasn't necessarily comfortable with it. Like an osteoporosis medication? Yeah, the um, like a bisphosphonate. Yeah. Okay. And the reason I wasn't comfortable with it is because when, after I dislocated my hips, I started doing some digging, some of my own, through my medical history. When I dislocated, I was like, this just isn't right. I've not been on steroids for a long time. Like, we just don't do steroids anymore for me just because of even before HPP. You know, we just knew that because of the AVN and everything, they're like, steroids are just not an option. I mean, unless it's like last resort, you know, but I, I'm able to be, my Crohn's disease is able to be managed without steroids now. So, and it shifted out and I was frustrated. Um, it was something that was one of those moments in life 
especially with my health that I kind of refer back to. That was one of the breaking points. And I was like, this isn't right. And there was one thing that always bothered me about my medical history, um, even before. And it was that when you looked at my blood work, my metabolic panel that they do, like pretty much everybody has done at least once, um, that alkaline phosphatase level was always extremely low. But I'm talking like severely low. So like the the normal level is adjusted for your age and gender and all of that. But for me, like 40 um, to like 150, I think is normal. And I was like 10. So it was like significant. So yeah, I actually did some digging. Eventually, I thought that maybe it was hypophosphatasia. Um, I came across a reticle research papers, came across a couple of things. And, and I was like, I think this, you know, this may be it. And the thing about that is, is that you, for someone who has HPP, um, you're not supposed to take the osteoporosis medications, especially the bisphosphonates. Um, so I told my PCP, who was great, he was like, you know, it could be it. We can get you tested. It took about a year, but eventually I had genetic testing to confirm. After a lot of broken bones and other things. And then what about your vitamin B6? Because that's also a factor. Yeah, so I never experienced um, any seizures related to that. I do have like the juvenile childhood kind, like version of the disease. Um, but my vitamin, when we had my vitamin B6 tested, it was never actually tested until they suspected, until we went down the path of, of trying to get a diagnosis. It was like four times the normal limit, um, what like four times higher than it should be, which is another telltale sign. I, I do obviously, and it, it, they say that it's not a whole lot known about the function of vitamin B6 apparently, um, but they um, they say that that also can contribute to to someone like nerve issues and muscle issues along with the magnesium and the phosphorus buildup. I do often get really bad headaches and they, they believe that is vitamin B6 related. So yeah, it was super high. <laughs> I want you to tell me a little bit also about your educational background and what it looked like for you to start digging, to start looking for the reason for all of these problems that you were having and when you suspected it was a rare disease. And so where did you start looking to understand what was going on with you? And because essentially you diagnosed yourself, really. Yes. How did you get there? For educational background, um, I have a, a bachelor's degree in, in biomedical sciences and I have a master's in biomedical research. I, my educational background definitely helped. You know, there are certain things that I knew and could kind of pinpoint. And I know how to read a research paper and stuff like that. So, um, but honestly, like most patients, I just started, you know, online, like Googling and, and looking. And so the one thing, even before I was had considered, even a couple of years before I kind of considered, I had always wondered about the alkaline phosphatase because I would get, like medical records all the time, like I would see my results. Like I get that comprehensive metabolic panel, like every time I go see my GI, that it had always stood out to me. So when I started looking and Googling and, and all of that, um, I started with um, symptoms, but then I also ended up looking into to alkaline phosphatase and why it would be low. The one thing though is that most places on like if you come across a lot of like medical articles oftentimes they only talk about it being high because there are more diseases and problems associated with high alkaline phosphatase instead of low but you know you have your one or two you know places that came up 
And then at that point, once I kind of, you know, did some digging, then I looked in like social media, you know, I've been working with a uh, nonprofit, the Soft Bones Foundation, and they've been great. And, and, you know, we're working together. And I think that one, the, it did help the sleuth thing. And I did a lot of the grunt work myself. I mean, I got a lot of my medical records and, you know, called around and, and um, really tried to dig in to just see. And, every, and the one thing that always came up and was always, you know, low was the ALP on all of my records. It's one of those things where I think that also having already have been diagnosed with a chronic condition for a long time, you know, I'd, I would, I think I was what, eight years into my Crohn's diagnosis or so by the time, I, you know, this came through and I'd already, already understood what it took to, to be very involved in your care. It, it was not easy, but <laughs> I took a lot of it. I did all of it myself and I did and ended up coming up with a diagnosis that was correct. It took it, I think from, from the time that I started looking into it. So I started looking in 2016 and it was almost 2018 before we officially, you know, got it. And, you know, I had to, I went saw a few doctors locally and then geneticists and then eventually got it but yeah it was a lot of just initial what most people do when they're either like newly diagnosed which again we always say be careful with the internet but we're gonna do it anyway we're gonna look anyways <laughs> absolutely <laughs> like it or not <laughs> So I know that you're on treatment because I lovingly follow you on social media, <laughs> of course. And I know just from the little bit of work I've done in the rare disease space that treatments for rare disease aren't always really treatments. Sometimes they're just to manage symptoms. Yeah. So tell me, though, about the treatment that you're on, which, oh, goodness, it's a <laughs> it's a it's a lot. So yeah. I'd love for you to. Um, Tell me a little bit more about what that's like. So for HPP, there's only one drug available, period, that is um, approved to treat the disease. One thing is just need to know that like alkaline phosphatase is an enzyme um, that's important for bone health. That's, that's the enzyme that allows those minerals into your bone and you to be able to get rid of vitamin B6 and all of that stuff. Um, but it's just an enzyme in p- patients with HPP. The genetic mutation doesn't allow our body to make enough of that enzyme. And what we make is typically not that functional. So the one treatment available uh, is called aspartase alpha um, or Strenzic, is an enzyme replacement. I mean, it's, it's your, you know, there are enzyme replacements out there, but it, it's an enzyme replacement. So it's an injection. It is weight-based so i do nine injections a week but it it does i mean it definitely treats the disease itself it's not a like silver bullet kind of thing it's especially if in people like me where it took so long to get diagnosed uh, my body had already been you know ravaged with you know the issues with bones and stuff like that but it definitely helps um it even in you know there are some forms that are lethal to babies but it has helped with that but yeah so it's just the enzyme replacement it you know it starts allowing those minerals into your bone and you know allowing you to get rid of of that extra you know calcium magnesium phosphorus b6 kind of lowered um trying to try to level all of that out 
but it again it's, it's definitely even even if you get diagnosed early and start it there's still there's still so much that it just can't do you know there's certain things that it's just not going to help with the disease is progressive um it can help slow it down but it's not not 100 percent it's a lot of injections um it's between I, I do nine a week right now i was doing six a week for a while i mean it, it does fluctuate some of the weight it's crazy. It's the only treatment. It wasn't approved, I think, until like 2015. So, yeah, it's it's a lot, but it's definitely helping. Well, that's good to hear because I would hope that it's helping if you're <laughs> giving yourself <laughs> nine needles a week for yeah. crying out loud, plus whatever you're receiving for your Crohn's disease on top of yes. that. Um, so how do these treatments inter- interact? Do they? How do the two diseases interact? We also know that IBD can affect your bone health. Mm-hmm. Your bone health is already <laughs> far and away. Messed up. So they wanted to put you on something that could improve your bone health, but that's not going to work for you, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. In general, the treatments... Um, you know, I'm on Humira for Crohn's and then Transic for um, the other, the HPP. Um, they don't really interact with one another per se. I mean, like they're obviously fine to like do. And then, um, but one of the, a couple of the issues as far, not necessarily medication related, well, sort of, but some of the issues that, like you said, like Crohn's disease, like IBD has its own set of like inflammatory arthritis you know, bone issues, especially if you've been on steroids or malnourished and all of that can affect your bone health. So there are in some times when I have like arthritis and, you know, issues of pain in my joints that we don't a hundred percent know whether it's Crohn's or HBP. Um, so it kind of makes it hard to manage that sometimes Usually, so if it's like inflammatory arthritis, then my inflammation levels are up. They typically attribute that to the Crohn's. But if that's normal, then they attribute it to HPP. Um, the one thing, too, is that um, for like pain management, so HPP is, is really painful. Um, you know, the skeletal pain is, is pretty severe. Um, but often they try to manage that with stuff. I mean, like opioids if you need it. Um, but a, a lot of it is they try to do like, non-steroid, anti-inflammatory, you know, the NSAIDs um, that we're not supposed to have with Crohn's. Some pretty powerful ones out there that you can get prescribed that would really help with that pain. Um, But I can't take those, especially not long-term. I can do like, you know, I deal with constipation with IBD. So taking pain medicine also attributes to that. Obviously, there are times where I have to have certain, I mean, sometimes I do take an NSAID and sometimes I do take pain medicine and and there's, but there's definitely this overlap and it, it makes it really hard from a, mostly for pain management. Um, it, it makes it really hard for my pain management position to kind of navigate all of that just because of the interaction of, of what will this drug do to the Crohn's disease or, you know, or vice versa. So they don't, it's not necessarily that the drugs themselves interact. It's just that there's definitely some, uh, some overlap of arthritis. But because of the Crohn's, I can't have certain medications. So it's just like a balancing act of, of trying to figure out what to do. And then also, I mean, trying to figure out what, you know, is what side effect or what symptom or what can you live with? Like what, you know, is it worth doing a short course of, you know, an in, a powerful NSAID? You know, is it worth being on, you know, 
some pain medicine for a while that could potentially make your Crohn's disease act up or get more constipated. So it's just a, a back and forth and just trying to figure out, you know, the, the best way to go about it. And it's, it's always a trade-off. There's always something, but this definitely makes certain aspects of treating each disease difficult. They don't always know if it's arthritis from, from Crohn's, which, would, which sometimes indicates active disease. Um, whereas it could just be the HPP and then, you know, so they don't know. It's just, it's frustrating sometimes we push through. It, yeah. And you know, you don't really have any choice, right? You it's literally you don't have a choice. You just <laughs> gotta do it. You gotta do it. So you go to a special center to have your HPP managed, uh, you, you know, your disease is ultra rare. So how many times have your physicians seen it and, are, are you a case report yet, do you think? <laughs> I am, actually. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's it's super rare. There are only a handful of physicians in the, um, in the U.S. that, uh, USA, United States, where we live, um, that are familiar <laughs> enough with the disease um, to treat it and that are comfortable trying to manage it. But so here, when I was diagnosed, when, well, the geneticist did my, di- you know, did ran the test. But when I was referred to like endocrinologist here and then geneticist, they both were just like, we've never seen the disease before. Like we've heard of it, but we've never had a confirmed case. But he was like, I can get the genetic test done. I mean, that's, you know, that's like the easy part. So yeah, so once they did that um, and I got diagnosed, they were the geneticist wanted to refer me out anyways but it took a little bit so they had never seen it and they were honest with me and they were like look we we're gonna try to refer you out because we don't feel comfortable treating you here one of the reasons was to get approved for you know the treatment it's very involved you know you need because i was older um so the treatment is approved for like certain forms of so pediatric childhood juvenile um if you end up having like an adult version of that um, the treatment's technically not approved. Um, but because I was diagnosed when I was older, we had to prove that I had all this other stuff prior to 18. And they were just like, we can try, but we don't really, you know, we don't know. They did ask if they could do a case study on me, though. And I was like, yeah, go ahead. So they wrote one up. Um, <laughs> but, like, I mean, a couple good things was, like, then there was a couple of, um, you know, people that came in from one of the foundations that, talked to the hospital and, and, you know, they had drug reps and, and the pharmacist came to the hospital to give lectures and stuff like that, you know, like on the disease. And so there was a, a little bit of a, a, a bright side of that was that, you know, more people now at the hospital, at least know, and I, I was a case study, but yeah, so I ended up going to, I go to Vanderbilt. Um, so it's the closest place to me with the physician who's familiar with treating it. I love my physician. She's great. It's kind of like, if you see a regular GI doctor and then you go see an IBD doctor and you're like, man, this is like just a whole different, like they're just at a different level. You know, there's that like this different, like they're like, yeah, they, they get it. Um, and that's kind of, that's how it was. You know, I saw her and she um, is, does a lot of research um, with the disease. Um, so it's an endocrinologist, um, like bone metabolism um, is what she kind of specializes in. Um, but she's been at the forefront of a lot of the research, some of the drug trials. There are like, I think there are like 1,300 or 1,500 cases in the U.S. that they know of, like diagnosed total. She's seen like over 100 of those like cases. 
you know, obviously she was able to get me on treatment, piece my records together to kind of, you know, paint the picture that was needed just to make sure that I qualified for it. And I am enrolled in certain studies um, there. Um, So every time I go up, I have to go every three to six months. Um, I've been in like several studies that that they have done. Um, A lot of it is like historical and then, you know, they get x-rays head to toe when you first see um, see them so they can see everything. And then I have like repeat, you know, stuff. So it was a lot, but like in, in the end and in the long, the long run, it's been really amazing. You know, she, she's incredible. It's been pretty great. It's very different from how I've had to deal with Crohn's. Um, you know, there are definitely some overlapping and again, chronic illness sucks. You know, it doesn't matter if it's Crohn's or HPP. It's just, just, it's always a struggle. Um, but there's definitely this, divide between having something that's ultra rare versus something that a lot of people know about and the fact that you know we have multiple treatments for for Crohn's disease versus I have one treatment for the other um and one treatment for the other that not everybody technically can get on it's actually it's not FDA approved for people who are adults um like if you have true adult HPP it definitely takes a lot of time. I mean, it takes two or three days uh, out of my week to, to go up, you know, to either fly or drive or, you know, I'm, I'm cramming in like four appointments in two days and, and also testing and, you know, I have yearly like x-rays and stuff like that. So it's, it's, it's a lot. It's very, very involved just with like anything, even with Crohn's, you know, we, we learn new stuff every day. It seems like, you know, and we're treating it even with, even when I was, you were diagnosed way before me with UC, but even when I was diagnosed in 2009, there was only like, what, like three or four, like biologics, you know, at that point. And then now there's a ton for IBD. So it's just, you know, they're learning stuff every day with the HPP and, but, they really need like if you can to 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 give them whatever information you can you know they want to study it and they want to be involved and stuff like that so it's it's very interesting it's a lot but it's really cool i've been involved in some really cool stuff so i did a, a research study where they kind of hooked me up to like a cgi thing and i went into this room and like i like the floor had like metal plates on it that were pressure sensitive and so basically they just did like i would just walk around in this black cgi suit and they wanted to you know, like CGI and look at how my, my gate was, you know, my walking gate, how my skeleton was and stuff like that. So, I mean, it's been really cool. It, it also gives me an opportunity to contribute to research and to contribute to, to some, you know, some form of, of, you know, trying to understand, you know, more about the disease and what can we learn and stuff. So it's been really cool. It's, it has some upsides, but it has a lot of downsides. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a few. I think if you have a rare disease and yours is ultra rare, is that an official designation, by the way, though? Ultra rare? It is. Okay. I think if you live with a rare disease or an ultra rare disease, it's almost a given that you are participating in research. And like you said, you're in multiple research uh, studies, whether they're observational or clinical trials or what have you. But as far as you diagnosed yourself, you know, your your background probably helped you with that. 
Do you have any advice for someone who suspects that they or their child or another family member might be living with a rare disease and they're trying to figure out where to go and how to get diagnosed? Yeah, I mean, I think that if there's any, I mean, if you have any suspicion that you could have some sort of, well, one, some sort of disease, but some sort of rare disease for sure, it's definitely harder to get diagnosed. And it has these just because you often can't find a physician that is familiar enough with it. So for, for me, some of the resources that I used was, um, you know, the National Organization for Rare Diseases um, has a great, you know, they got all kinds of information. I would say this too, if you think you know the rare disease that you may have, or you have some suspicion of that, look for the foundations, look for, you know, like a, a nonprofit, or um, for me, it was the softballs, you know, obviously they're nonprofits for IBD, but the Rare Disease Foundations, they... They're familiar with how hard it is to get diagnosed. Um, so they often provide a lot of detail and a lot of, you know, they have, obviously they have certain physicians that they know and they just have contacts that will be able to help you kind of navigate that. So I think that that's one big thing that really helped me. Any suspicion of that, I mean, is valid and should be sought out. So don't be afraid to ask your primary care. I mean, I took a research paper to my primary care doctor and I was like, look, this is what I found this is kind of where I'm at. And he was like, okay, let's do it. You know, that, so don't feel like you can't bring that stuff to your doctor. But if you can't, if you bring it and they write you off, then you need to go somewhere else. You know, I had multiple second opinions and then ended up at Vanderbilt. And, you know, I'm not a doctor or anything like that. You know, and I, I don't know if, I, obviously my background helped, but I honestly feel like it was also a little bit of luck. But, you know, it's definitely intimidating, like finding all of that and then go into your doctor and being like, hey, this is I think I have this. Be steadfast, you know, push for it. You know, even if even if you're wrong, even if you end up not having what you think you have, you may have something else. So, I mean, it's but yeah, definitely look for, you know, look online. I mean, nowadays there's there are lots of communities um, Look for the foundations and just kind of. Don't be afraid to, to take point in your care and, and do what's best for you. I mean, in the end, it's, it's your health, it's your, your life, your, you know how you feel. So just don't be, and don't be intimidated to, to speak with your physician and be like, hey, I, I think it's this. Or can we check this? And if they're not willing to, then hey, then you need to go somewhere else. Aaron, you're a dad and your son is super cute. <laughs> so I would be remiss if I didn't ask you a little bit about what he's into now. What's he doing? What's the favorite oh, cartoon? Gosh. What's the favorite toy? He is into everything. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Literally, as, probably, as like right? <laughs> everything. Yeah, he has so much energy. It's insane. He so one like it's a lot of fun. Like he's two and uh, almost two and a half now, so his vocabulary is is like developing at a rate that's fun, but also like he starts telling us no and like stuff, you know, and like <laughs> you know, it's great. I love your vocabulary, but I'm gonna need you to like calm down. <laughs> Aaron, it has been such a joy to get to know you. And thank you so much for talking with me about living with Crohn's disease and living with HPP. And um, you know, hey. Happy Rare Disease Day. <laughs> Thank you for having me. This has been fun. Hey, super listener. 
Thanks this week goes to Aaron Blocker for sharing his story of his journey with Crohn's disease and HPP. Aaron and I have worked together in the past, and the last time I saw him was in January of 2020 for Crohn's and Colitis Congress in Austin, Texas. We were walking in an area with cobblestone sidewalks, and I kept turning to him to ensure that he was okay with all the unevenness of where we were walking. At one point, I asked him if his wife worried and if she felt like wrapping him in bubble wrap because I was so worried about him getting injured and we were only walking to dinner. Rare disease has far-reaching effects and it's one of the many reasons it's important that Aaron tells his story and that more people hear it. We touched on very little of Aaron's journey, so I encourage you to follow him on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. I will put all his contact information and links to more about the topics we discussed in the show notes and on my episode 89 page on aboutibd.com. Rare Disease Day is celebrated all over the world, and I encourage you to go to rarediseaseday.org to learn more and to participate. Thanks for listening. And remember, until next time, I want you to know more about IBD. About IBD is a production of Malintel Enterprises. It is written, produced, and directed by me, Amber Tresca. Mix and sound design is by Matt Cooney. Theme music is from Cooney Studio. I saw like a meme, like a toddler meme or something, and it was like the toddler was like saying their food was spicy. And the parent was like, it's a pancake. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I have to find that because that is my kids. (laughs) 